Our text this morning is from 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 14 through 19. You can find this on page 320 in the Bibles placed on the chairs in front of you. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows, and then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times, and then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it but now you will strike down Syria only three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Good morning. Mike is green. I think we're good. It is so good to be here. I feel so privileged to be preaching. Um, <clears throat> before, and you can be, that was one text I want to preach from. I'm also going to work in Psalm 2. So if you could be opening there, I'll give you a two-minute missions update for us. We are, again, as Justin said, thrilled that they are coming on board. Justin has far more, and uh, Jillian has far more experience than we do on the field. So it feels weird to be re- welcoming them onto our field when they have more experience in missions than we do. And also, it feels great to have connected with Justin some over the last year, just a couple of Zooms, just try to, trying to get to know him and them, and just, I think, the world of them. And I respect Justin a ton. And I, we feel in MT3 so amazingly privileged that he's going to be on board with us. What a blessing. Amen? So that's one thing to say. The other is I've been a part, we've been a part of MT3. So my wife, Martha Mark, just stand up just a moment so everyone can see your pretty face and think more of me in the reflection of you. But we've been working with mobile theological training teams since, is it 2019? And I've trained in, of course, COVID hit, but before that, we had trained in Kenya, Rwanda, and South Africa now. Rwanda has become the place of, I'd say, a special focus. It's not the only place that, that I teach now, but it has been a place that God has particularly laid upon our, our hearts. Um, there's just such a, a need there that if I start to talk about it, it'll take the next hour. So I'm going to just leave it there and pray. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be a herald, a prophet, a preacher, declaring your word. But Lord, this is not just a prayer today that the person who happens to be preaching today can 
can pray. Lord, you've called us to be a church of witness. Lord, in Revelation 11, we're the two witnesses that are bearing witness, prophesying to the nations. Lord, that's the missions movement as we see you call the nations to yourself in these days. So to that end and for the glory of Jesus, I pray that you would bless the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart as I preach, but you would also bless the hearing and you would bless the landing of the word in the hearts of those who, re- who are here and who hear online or in the physical space. Be with us. We can do nothing without your Holy Spirit. So we lean today not on the arm of the flesh, but on the spirit of the living God. In the name of Jesus, amen. I want to say up front, we desperately need to pray. And this sermon is a call to prayer. And I've entitled it The Prayers of Two Kings. So the first king was Joash, and he's a bad king. But we are also going to read a text from Psalm 2 of the good king, whom, as I read it, I'm sure you can imagine who the good king is. So if you have Psalm 2 open, I'm just going to read the first nine verses there. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. Terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's the word of the living God. So we've read two texts. The good king, Christ. The bad king, Joash, from 2 Kings 13. Now, there's a danger this could be just another be like Jesus sermon. Like there's three groups. There's The Joash group, don't be like Joash. And the Jesus group, be like Joash. But somehow we're removed from both of those and it could go either way with us any day. Be like Jesus, don't be like Joash. And those messages are fine as far as they go, but the be like Jesus only, don't be like X only messages fall short. Because At the end of the day, if the Son of God doesn't come down and take upon himself our nature, doing for us what we could not ever do for ourselves and bringing us up in himself to where he was before, if he doesn't do for us what we can never do for ourselves, we can never choose the the right path. We will always be Joash. Amen? The good news is he has likewise come down. So in this comparison... It's not only a be like Jesus, don't be like Joash. I'm asking what makes for good prayer, period. And I want to put a thought in your head as we then more exegetically flow through these two texts. The answer is when the Spirit, by the Word, 
puts the good king's own prayers on our lips, and we pray together with him. It's when his spirit takes his prayers, puts them on our lips, and we pray together with him. That's the thought I want to run through the message. Because remember, Psalm 2, verse 8, ask of me. That's a prayer. The Messiah is being commanded to ask for something. Are we in him? Yes, we are. It's not just be like Jesus. It's be in Jesus by the spirit he gave to us that we might pray his very prayers. That's what makes for good prayer. So let's start in 2 Kings chapter 13, talking about the bad king. You might say, what in the world, what does this weird text mean, right? Is this arrow shooting and arrows being against the ground? What in the world is this strange? We're in an Old Testament world. It's some sort of prophetic enactment that's happening here. But it's not just an enactment because it seems to make happen that which it portrays. What is going on here? This is weird. But let's give some context because I think the context makes it mainly clear. We are told just a few verses before we started our reading in verse 14. But, but back in verse 11, we are told that Jehoash or Joash, it's the same person. Two different names in the same paragraph is one of the things that makes it strange. Joash is Jehoash. And weirdly enough, there's a Joash in Judah as well. So we're in northern Israel. So we've got three names for two people, two of which are the same. It's really strange. But Joash in Israel and Jehoash are the, are the same people. And Jehoash is a bad king. We've just been told that. Now, a couple of generations before, his granddaddy was a guy named Jehu. And if you remember this thing called Jehu's purge, was prophesied by Elijah and Elisha. But Jehu purged Israel in the north of Baal worship. Pagan idolatry was torn down. It was extremely violent. If you love reading the, the Old Testament, it's one of the best places to read. It's like an action movie. But we're after that. And in the latter parts of Jehu's life, he fell right back into the sins of idolatry that Jeroboam I, who was the first northern king, brought into play. Now, this is too much of a history lesson. Just bear with me. I'm going to get, it's going to get better in just a moment. But the reason I'm telling you this history lesson about Jehu is because Jehu began well. He ends poorly. But God gives him this promise. He says, because you started well, because you obeyed me in the purge, I'm going to keep your sons on the throne to the fourth generation. Now, his sons were going to be wicked. But that's the context for Joash slash Jehoash, the king that we are reading about, who was wicked. The point is, God is sovereignly sustaining him in power, even though he was wicked and would ordinarily have been removed because God had made a certain promise, okay? So he's a bad king. So read this deal about the arrows in the light of he is unfaithful. Point being, Joash was one of these bad kings who was kept in power because of God's promise to Jehu. So our text with the arrows, the shooting and then the beating three times, is a couple of things. First, it's an indictment of his lack of faith. It puts, it puts in by prophetic enactment in sharp relief, almost like a stage, like you would go to watch a show. It puts on display his lack of faith. He hits three times, he should have hit five or six times. 
Secondly, it puts in the same display for the narrative reader who's reading in context that God is keeping him and blessing Israel because of the promise to Jehu. But the text is doing so, the narrative is doing so, in such a way that if you're reading and being honest, you can't miss that this support God was giving was in spite of Joash's lack of faith, not because of faith, or some kernel of faith or something. God was blessing an unfaithful man because of his promise. Thirdly, of course, our text is meant to glorify Elisha and the fulfillment of the prophetic word in the history of Israel. In some ways, that's the primary reason because Elisha is about to pass away, pass off the scene. But it's meant to display through prophetic enactment why Jehoash is wicked. Not just that he is. We've been told that he is. But why is he wicked? Because his faith falls short. So that's the context. Hope you're still with me. Let's talk about specifically about what's happening with these arrows. So I don't think the meaning is, oh, man, let's turn this into a method. You know, he, he beat the arrows three times. If he only had to hit the ground two or three more times, so we can build a method on that. Let's not just have three meetings, three prayer meetings. Let's have five. God wants us to persevere to a certain point. We'll have a certain breakthrough. I don't think that's the point. The, the meaning isn't, I don't think, he should have known to hit the ground X number of times instead of X minus two number of times. Like a formulaic type approach, X versus X minus two. The, I think the point is, because of the context and what you now know from reading, it's just, I'm just sort of laying the last couple of chapters to you. His request was always going to fall short because of his wicked, unbelieving heart. Do you understand? Because of what was in his heart, because of who he was, of course his prayer, his request, when he's being asked to render something in response to God's word, it was going to fall short. So in a way, this arrow beating, three verses, five or six, could be taken as a prophetic enactment of prayer, unbelieving prayer. Joash comes to the prophet, weeping tears of doubtful fear. Oh, my father! The chariots and horsemen of Israel. You can hear his, his uh, pathos. You can see his crocodile tears. He's in trouble. The Syrians are coming. I need help. We're going to be destroyed. What about the promise God gave to my grandfather? It's all the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Help me, my father. But he comes appealing to a prophet he's never followed for help from a God he's never submitted to. The result is that when he is tested, when something is required of him, his enacted prayer is namby-pamby with whimpering doubt. Namby-pamby, weak-armed, whimpering doubt. Now, I wanted to pause. As I was preparing my, my you know, sermon, I thought this is a point where people could easily misunderstand. When I talk about namby-pamby, wimpy prayer, you could think, well, is he saying, or worse yet, is God saying that the only kind of prayer he recognizes are strong, robust prayers? You know, oh God, I know what you're going to do. I know that you are going to do X, Y, Z, so I'm praying it down. Oh God, I decree and I declare that this thing will happen. Right? God hears bold prayers and stick out your chest prayers. That is completely not what I mean when I say God was condemning his namby-pamby prayer. 
And I want to give you a story to illustrate this. I grew up in a church, and like a lot of churches, there would be a prayer time after the service that maybe a group that was designated for it would have off to the side, and you could come and get prayer for personal needs or ask for prayer from the elders for healing or, or something like, like that. And we had a woman in our church named Trudy Edgerton. And Trudy was, I think, in her 60s at the time, and she got bone cancer that proceeded to stage four terminal bone cancer. And she, of course, she came up week after week asking for prayer and was not healed. And she actually, she's a close personal family friend of ours, and she came to the point where Trudy said, I'm not going to pray for healing any longer. God apparently doesn't want to heal me, and I'm not only submitted to that, I'm actually really ready to see Jesus. She says, I'm not even asking God to heal me in, in, any longer. In fact, I'm asking him to take me home, not out of depression or wanting to be out of this world, but I just really am looking forward to seeing Jesus. And so she kind of let, let that be known. The next week she comes to church and her friends were like, well, let's just bring you up for prayer. She said, I don't want to go up. I'm so reconciled to this. They basically made her go up front and God healed her. This, the power of God came down. She literally came into the room with a walker and she left out of that room dancing. Went to the doctor, totally clear scan. They ended up, the North Carolina Museum of National Health found out, or Natural History, I forget what it's called, in Raleigh, found out about this, asked her, she wrote her testimony out. They put her crutches and her testimony on the wall of the museum. This happened in our church. And the point, the reason I'm telling you this is to illustrate God, this idea, God honors these incredibly bold prayers, like, I'm going to strike the ground, right? It's, it's my strength. Stick my chest out. God is going to do this. I had this massive faith. She was not in that place at all. She was actually ready to go see, see, see Jesus. Do, do you see the point? Jesus is in Gethsemane, and he's praying, and he's weeping. Paul is praying, asking for the thorn to be removed from him. Brokenness and weakness if it's dependency, is exactly the kind of prayer that God is looking for. What he doesn't want is the hypocritical prayer where we're leaning on our own strength. That's the Joash prayer. So let's transition to Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2. I've, I've, all, I've already read it. But this is the good prayer, the good king, the prayer of the good king. I want you to notice the point of comparison by way of contrast with Joash, Jehoash. Where's the prayer in Psalm 2? Do, do you see it there? Where's the Messiah commanded to pray? It's in verse 8. Read it there with me. Ask of me. Now, who's saying this? It says, the Lord, that's Yahweh, is saying to his son. So this is the Lord speaking to the son of the Lord. And the Lord says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Ask of me. So the Messiah is being told by God, who's his father, to pray to him and to ask a certain prayer. Ask for his inheritance. Ask for each of the nations that he, that is the Messiah, may rule over them. Now notice the contrast with Jehoash. The Messiah is asking, he's told to ask for every nation. 
It's very similar to when Elisha gave the arrows to Joash. I want to see you enact to me your request. What do you want to have happen? Boom, three-week prayers. That's all he has. But when the Messiah is asked to pray, he's asking for every nation under heaven. Now, I want to pause. That, I want you to remember that thread because I'm going to pick it back up in just a moment. But I want to take a five-minute side note and ask, who is this one being commanded to pray? Earlier, I had made mention, I don't want the sermon to be just a bad king, good king, don't be like this guy, be like this guy. I want us to be in the good king. And for that to happen, he had to come down. And he had to come down without ceasing to be who he was. He had to come down and take into his person our nature. So that as a true man in our nature, he could do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That the words, the song that we sang this this morning, Arise, my soul, could happen. Our souls can't arise unless he brings us up, unless we're in him. So who is this one being commanded to pray? Obviously, the Davidic Messiah, the descendant of David, whom Joash in 2 Kings 13 should have been like, but was not. But the the Davidic Messiah, David's son. But notice the Messiah, who is a physical earthly descendant of a person named David, an actual dude named David, is here called the son of the Lord. So you have to ask, how is it possible for the son of the Lord to be the same one who is a descendant of David? It's very important because obviously the son's Lord cannot receive nations as God because as God, they've always been his, which is one of the weird things. How do you understand Psalm 2? until the incarnation of Jesus Christ, until he comes down, takes on a true humanity, he can't receive nations. He's God. God can't receive nations. He's always had nations. Amen? So how does the Son of God receive a command from his Father, from Yahweh, from God, to to ask him to receive the nations if they've always been his? What this means is that Psalm 2 is ultimately, I mean, there's, it's, typologically a, um, you know, it's David picturing Christ, but ultimately it is a post-incarnational prayer. It requires the one who is God to come down to us, becoming one of us without ceasing to be God so that he can be both the son of Yahweh and the son of David at the same time. Only such a one can both deserve to receive nations because they were always his and ask to receive them because now he is true man. This means this text is a post-incarnational prayer, the one who has always been the only begotten of the Father according to his deity is now also the descendant of David according to his humanity. So now he may receive as man the same nations that were always his as God. But he's doing it on our behalf, in our nature. Okay, so that's my five-minute side note. I'm going to go back and pick up my strand. For our purpose, here's the point. This receiving of the nations as man, as king, as David's son, while still being God, 
this receiving of the nations that the Son of God is to undergo is to be accomplished by his own asking, by his own prayer. In a sense, this is a prayer that is his alone. He's told to ask. The Father says, the prayer I will hear in terms of changing the world, the prayer I will hear in terms of changing the nations, bringing the nations in, is the prayer of the incarnate one who's at my side, who is my son, who went down in your nature, and now on your behalf has been raised up and sits as king, him asking me for the nations. That's the prayer I hear. And when I hear it, that's, that, that's the means by which I will change the world and bring the nations in. It's the only means. The prayer I hear is the prayer of the one at my right hand, my son, my Messiah. But I want you to notice how that contrasts with with our buddy Joash and how similar Joash is to us. Joash takes a bundle of arrows, poignantly a sign of military conquest. After all, we are talking about kings and kingdoms in both of our texts. And he symbolically slash prophetically acts out what we call kind of noodle-armed faith, always falling short. But the point is, so will our prayer. I hope you identify with him. So will our prayer outside of union with the one who came down so that he could take on our nature, he could take our nature into union with his person so that now he may receive the nations and rule in our nature. Outside of him, all of us are Joash. In him, in Christ, though, The weakest one among us makes the demons tremble, makes the other kingdom shake. That's the truth. So I want you to think about Jesus on earth, this Messiah. Note his weakness, his dependency. Notice all the things about Jesus that don't look like an earthly king. Notice his perfect faith and trust in God. Notice how that contrasts with Joash. He's the only one that truly contrasts with Joash. And notice Jesus, when he prays, he has boldness to ask for everything, every square foot of planet Earth. He says, this is mine. Every nation, every people group, every neighborhood, every dark place, every place we can imagine, he says, this is mine. I'm nothing like Joash. Read John 17. Read the Lord's Prayer. Read Matthew 28. He claims every square foot. With this contrast in mind, I want to say some things about prayer. Now that I've sort of laid out the two kings and hopefully destroyed any sense that you can mimic not this one but this one in your own strength, I want to talk about prayer. Joash is us in the flesh, but we are in Jesus by the Spirit. How do we walk in the Spirit together with prayer? So I want to give you three kind of steps. I'm not big at steps because when a lot of times when preachers lay steps out, I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, but sometimes two comes before one and three comes before two, and you're laying this out in this chronological way. So I'm telling you these are steps, but they're not really because they're all mixed up, but I'm just dividing out three aspects, I think, because I want us to be praying in Christ. 
Number one is union. The result is confidence. Number two will be scripture resulting in shaped content. And the third will be guidance resulting in empowered prayer. So union, scripture, and guidance resulting in confidence, shaped content, and empowerment. What is the root of our confidence in prayer? Do you build up to a point of being confident? Do you pray into confidence? Do you work yourself up and only when you get to a certain point, now I have permission to feel confident in my prayers? No, confidence is something that we receive from the fact of our union with Christ. God has given us the spirit of Jesus. Therefore, we begin with confidence. Confidence is an aspect of grace. Things flow from confidence in Christ. We don't create it. It's a gift. Why is that? Because we don't make union with, with Christ happen. That is where prayer starts. Right now, what is, what is Jesus Christ doing? Well, maybe a lot of things. Holding the universe together by the word of his power. Being the image of the almighty God. Being true God from true, true, true God. Light from light. Begotten, not made. He's doing a lot of things. But one of the things he is doing, Hebrews 7 says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's praying right now. Raised Jesus is praying to the Father on our behalf. Could he pray before the incarnation? Not in this sense. Because his prayer is something that a human being does towards God. So him who was always God came down and became Man, and now the Son of God does indeed pray on our behalf. So the Spirit puts His prayers on our lips. Our stammering lips repeat His prayers after Him. Now, how can it be, I want to ask, that our prayer is a participation in His own prayer? It's one thing to say Jesus has this set of prayers that He prays, and then you sort of have a set of prayers that you pray down here. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying by the Spirit, we are praying his, his actual prayers. Somehow we are participating in the prayers he is praying. Therefore, we are participating in the ones that are guaranteed to be heard. Do you see that? Union with Christ. How can that be? Well, fundamentally... Christ and the Spirit are one being, Trinitarian truth. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one being, one essence, one divine nature. So the Spirit who is one with Christ ontologically is also in us. He's in us. And he gives us a union with the Son. Therefore, think about this. It's not the case that he has a list of prayers and we have a list of prayers and they're separate prayers because we have his own spirit, the spirit of Christ. So he prays in us. Christ prays in us. And because we are in him, we pray in him. And again, the father always hears the prayers of his son. He always answers the prayers of his son. This is what it means to pray in his name. 
also carries an inheritance nuance, which is Psalm 2.8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. It's inheritance. To, be, to pray in the name of the Son, part of what that means, to pray in the inheritance of the Son, to be included in that prayer that he is praying, give me my inheritance. It's every nation. Give me Rwanda. Give me South America. Give me Africa. He's praying those things for his inheritance. To pray in his name, part of what it means is to pray in that inheritance, to pray it to pass, to pray his prayers with him because we have his Holy Spirit. But what I found is that most Presbyterians, when they hear this theology of union, they'll say, yes, I agree with that theology. But it easily remains a theory, something you hear in a sermon, but might not change the way you actually pray. Now, others of a more mystical root will say, oh, this part about if I have the Spirit, I have the prayers of Jesus. Let me shut my Bible quick, and I'll just think whatever pops up in my own spirit. That's the Holy Spirit putting the prayers of Jesus on my lips. Isn't this great? Right? That's the mystical route. Um, So it can be a problem. So which brings me to point two. So if union brings about a confidence from grace, I don't increase my union. I don't make it happen. It's something the Holy Spirit did when the Father gave me the Spirit of Christ. The reason I'm regenerate, the reason I know him at all, is because I have been graced and given union with his son, the one who came down. That's where I start. That, that, that's confidence. But then secondly, scripture. Shaped content is the result. Scripture is necessary to praying in the spirit because we need to know more than knowing about our union. We need to know the mind of the one in whom we are. And his mind is expressed in the word of God. If I say to you, we pray, or by the spirit, we pray the prayers of the son. By the spirit, we pray the prayers that the son is praying right now. You'll say to me, that is so true, that is so profound, but what do I actually say? Well, how do I actually start? That sounds so mystical. While not denying the mystical core, Knowing that the Spirit puts the prayers of Jesus on our lips gives us confidence, but it doesn't go far enough to actually telling us what the actual words are that we should pray. That's why we have the Bible. Again, the Son is the Word, and He is the one who spoke to the prophets and to the apostles. He is the one who gave them His mind. So the Scripture is the mind of Christ, cover to cover, old and new. It is the mind of Christ perfectly written that we might know those prayers, those thoughts that are in his mind, his perfect, noble, kingly mind. The one promised to come down, who has come down, who has done for us in our nature what we never could do for ourselves. So, The most obvious thing this means is that we should pray the actual words of Scripture. The Lord's Prayer, for instance, what a treasure. He was asked, how do we pray? And he gave us actual words. 
the Psalms. What a treasure. We have the Psalms of Christ through David. What a treasure. Paul's prayers, and even really any scripture, can be turned to prayer. So the most obvious thing this means is that we should pray the actual words of Scripture, giving ourselves to memorization, giving ourselves to meditation upon the Word, and doing it corporately, doing it together and alone and as families. But there is something else, something I'm actually focusing on, called praying Scripture-shaped prayers. And Psalm 2 is an example because in Psalm 2, verse 8, the Son of God as man is commanded by God and Father to ask, but we don't have his exact response in that particular text. Now, the New Testament is full of it. For instance, John 17, which if I go there would take an hour, so we won't do that. So we do have his words in prayer in the New Testament after he did indeed come down while remaining who he was before, yet adding a true humanity. So if we are in Christ, we are being commanded to pray the same prayer. For example, the Moravian prayer, the famous Moravian prayer for missions is really a riff on Psalm 2. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. The, that note of reward, that's Psalm 2.8. Give me my heritage. Right? It's my inheritance. Every nation is mine because you told me to pray that, Father. And now I can after I, I, I came down. I want to receive every nation as man that I always had as God. So that's the Moravian prayer, and it's an example of a riff on Psalm 2, verse 8. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. You see the emphasis on the incarnation? May the lamb that was slain, why did he come down? Yes, to live a righteous life, but also to die to die for us on the cross. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. So that's confident prayer and then scripture-shaped prayer. And then the third thing is guidance. As I was preparing the message, I thought, well, even if I stop here, it might not be enough because what I have found is even if you understand union and you're super confident and your, your prayers are being shaped by the word, there's still a thousand different things which you don't know exactly how to pray. How do I pray for my son who's doing this? How do I pray for this particular situation in missions? What is God's will here? So I've included guidance, the result-empowered prayer. Sometimes we don't know what to pray. Romans 8, the Spirit intercedes with uh, uh, you know, groanings too deep for words. So confidence comes from knowing we have union with Christ by the Spirit. Content comes from our prayers being shaped by the word, but in a sense that still doesn't always get all the way down into the nitty-gritty of many of our prayers. I think that's by design because we pray by faith. We pray by faith, not by sight. But also, necessarily, we pray for things more specific than the generalities of Scripture. We need the Spirit. We need specific guidance. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The Puritans talked about praying until you pray. That you're praying, you don't know what to pray, there are these groans too deep for words, some things you really 
don't know exactly how to pray, but you're praying the word of God. You're being shaped by the word of God. It could go on for days, but then suddenly, I call it the whoosh. There's this thing that happens and you just have clarity and you realize exactly what to pray. And you pray those prayers and you still can't guarantee that these are the exact prayers of Jesus from heaven's throne. I'm not talking about like receiving divine revelation and things of that nature. I'm just talking about praying until you pray. You do have these breakthroughs in prayer where you do get filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I'm urging you to begin with union, scripture-shaped prayers, and ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is the gift of faith whereby the woman reached out to touch the hem of, Je- of Jesus' you know, garment. We should ask for it and expect it. It doesn't always come, or maybe it does and we don't know it has happened. But it is part of our experience of prayer, both privately and corporately. All right, so in conclusion, let us be bold. I want you to notice something. I want to make a point and then we'll pray. We are commanded to be bold. In a sense, this entire sermon could be summed up by the lack of boldness of, of Joash and the boldness of the one who came down in our nature, rose up, sits at the Father's throne, did for us what we could never do for ourselves, and now in our nature, representing us, sitting at the Father's right hand, praying the boldest prayer imaginable. Give me Rwanda. Give me Tanzania. Give me Nigeria. Give me Sudan. Give me Ethiopia. He's praying bold prayers. Give me the whole thing. There's a boldness if we are in Christ that comes. There's a boldness that is there that is not man-made, that is genuine, that doesn't come from human strength and puffing our chest out. It comes from being in the one who sits the Father's right hand. So what makes for a good prayer? When the Spirit, by the Word, puts the good King's own prayers on our lips, and we pray together with Him. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now on the basis of the gift of union with Jesus Christ, the one who was made incarnate and became man without ceasing to be God, the same one who lived a perfect life on our behalf, indeed doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, and the one who died our death on your cross, offering himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and being raised in our nature so that the elect, all those he would call to himself in the Son, you would raise to your right hand. You gave us your Spirit, who is the Spirit of your Son, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us. And part of the things that have been freely given to us is a life of prayer. So now we want to ask for all the nations under heaven, I pray for this church, that this church would be a house of prayer.
for the nations. Lord, that you would call in to Christ all the nations represented by the missionaries sent out by this church, and that you would see that those prayers prayed around dinner tables and small groups and elders meetings and corporate meetings like this and set aside times where you call this church to fast and pray, that you would see those prayers and though they be a pittance because they are offered in the person of the one who is seated at your right hand, you would honor them as the very prayers of your son and that you would answer them tangibly you would answer them truly, you would answer them historically, and we would see the nations streaming towards the mountain of the Lord during these days. Lord, I pray towards that great day when you return again, when the one who came down and looked up as he prayed, the one who is now up and looks down as he prays, may bring heaven down and bring the dead in Christ with him, and gather those of us who are left to meet them in the air. When there is a new heavens and a new earth, and every language group, every nation under heaven is represented at that great worship before the throne of God, upon which the Lamb who was slain reigns forever. Give us a hope for and a love for that day. Let that day be in our hearts and in our preaching and in our prayer. Let it infiltrate everything we do. Draw our eyes upward away from the mundane things of this world. Change us that we might pray the prayers that your son is praying even right now. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.